0: Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Um, This week on the show, we're going to get into one of my, I think, favorite topics, and that is biocultural collections and interesting museum pieces, and explore a little bit about how these artifacts relate to our health and to our food systems. Um, Our guest today is Aurora Prane. She's the biocultural collection manager at the William L. Brown Center at Missouri Botanical Garden, located in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, She completed her bachelor's in anthropology and environmental studies, at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then completed her master's in ethnobotany at the University of Kent and the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. Um, She's interested in looking at local food culture, health and environment. She's also undertaken research in Georgia where she spent three and a half months investigating the biocultural relationships between Georgians, their landscape, and grapes. Um, She's also been researching the tea and teaware objects of the Economic Botany Collection at Q since 2019. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Aurora. It's really great to see you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I love your podcast and what you do for our field. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I mean, I wanna to touch on some of your more recent work first. Let's start with tea and teacups and all the different things that go into um, the history of tea consumption. And maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit about this collection, where you found these tea artifacts. At Q's collection or, or in the- Yeah, a Q. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Uh. Yeah, I, I, I first got into the collection on a tour during my master's program. In eighteen or nineteen, I think it was more like it was more like January twenty nineteen. And of course, I I asked if I could see the the tea items, and uh, I was because I I knew that they must have some. It's England, of course. They must <laughs> see. It's a historic collection. It's Q, um, and they did. They have about three hundred twenty five items then at the collection. It's now over four hundred, um, and I was blown away. It is. Uh, Full of items that you only read about. And prior to starting that master's, I was working in the uh, specialty tea and botanical trade in the US. Um, so a lot of this was very fresh in my mind. I was a tea taster and educator there, and I'm um, taking the botanical lens um, in a lot of the classes. And um, so a lot of this is fresh in my mind. And, you know, we have like Q has like, I say we is Missouri and Q. I, I'm working with both of them. Um, like a, a clay, you know, Tibetan teapot that that is, you know, of good size mm-hmm. that's not cracked, not damaged, handles intact, a wooden lid that's used for um, uh, Tibetan tea. So, a lot of the the images that are shown in the interview you had with Dr. Robbie Hart in the Brown Center, those metal teapots you see, they used to make them brass and copper, um, and clay of different materials. So, there's a clay one from 1850s. And they also had different Puar tea bricks and, and, and black tea bricks and, and cakes um, there and some of the names of some of the plant explorers and, and traders and collectors, um, um, you know, Twining, Sportman Mason, some companies were there. And I just found it fasc- fascinating. I knew the historical context. I spoke with the curator, Martin Nesbitt at the time. I was like, do you know what you have here? <laughs> and I was like, uh, it, was, it was like there are people that would be like dying to to try some of these teas. Of course, or not can drink the collection. That's always a question we ask. Like, do you drink? Try, have you tried any of the teas? And the answer is no, not <laughs> at the time. Um, if we if we would do that, we would we would um, link it up uh, uh, with chemistry, and, and we would do it. It's a destructive sampling at this point. Um, we would definitely need, need to do it, not just for, to fulfill our own care capacities, mm-hmm. um, as much as I really want to. Um, and, uh, and there, there, and there are jars of teas, uh, tea types I haven't seen before and, um, working in industry for a few years in the specialty organic sector, um, seeing like a wide range of different types and different origins and different genetics grown in, in unique places. And I was still seeing some that were unfamiliar and, and, um, it's. It became uh, quite clear after we had. Um, we hosted a few workshops right up till right up before um, COVID happened, and um, at Q and of, of the London Tea History Association or Tea History Association, uh, they've recently dropped the London and. Um, yeah, scholars and industry folk and and the one the, the types that I was uh, curious about they've also aren't familiar with it all. So it means that it is is fallen out of of um uh, of manufacture or use or trade in the West um, yeah. or areas where these people have familiarity. So it was really it just it was very fascinating and I there no one has uh, taken uh, work um, the research into this sub collection of the EBC in the last hundred years and I just really wanted to dive into it. So it definitely became a project um, with lockdown and and being separate from the collection for two and a half years almost, um, that I just I just latched onto and I just kept working at, and I held on to that project. It's definitely a COVID project.
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, I mean, I'm a big, uh, you know, I love tea, and I know it comes in many different forms. So we think about loose leaf tea, you're talking about tea bricks as well. And mm-hmm. I think when we think about today, the common way that we may prepare tea is in just a regular ceramic tea vessel um, or just directly into a mug, um, but you were mentioning these other objects. So in this collection, there are clay, metal, um, are all these, are there also vessels to store the tea or what kinds of other objects are are there? Yeah.
1: Right. Um, so there's about, today there's about just over 400. It's coming from all six continents and they're mostly tea leaves. So the difference with this collection, uh, biocultural collection right, kind or of like botany collection versus an artistic collection um, is that it's, it's mainly made of plants or for plant use.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and especially, each one of the collections, of course, different. Cues um, has been uh, been around uh, op- the, um, the garden, is you know, it's a Royal Botanic Garden. as um, part of the royal family, um, moved to the um, government in 1840, first director 1841 museum opened of vegetable products, which became the um, Economic Botany Collection on September 20th, 1847. And it's been at Q and growing um, continuously since. So that's a remarkable feat for any institution or collection or anything like that. Um, So what they collected at the time um, were items of anything they, they were collecting, bringing in anything Um, soliciting donations and all of his connections actually uh uh William Jackson Hooker the first Q's first director and um they're collecting pretty much everything that they could and the first guidebook came out in 1855 and the tea collection there and sets up his intention for the collection Mm -hmm. which is to reflect what was going on and um this is just one thing that as I got into it it really solidified um my interest in this sub collection is that they're, they really actively brought in everything. They brought in the Chinese leaves, they brought in everything that could be found on the market. And then as if you know anything about tea, the um, European observation of native tea to India being used in the upper Sound Valley by Singapore peoples um, in the 1830s, 1820s, 1830s um, and that whole story. But if you overlay that with the uh, Q's uh, collection story The museum is really coming out when Indian grown tea and Chinese grown tea and of the genetics being grown in both places and being moved around was already, the wheels were already turning on that. So William Jackson Hooker collected both. He collected Indian tea, he collected Chinese tea, not because one was superior, but he brought in both to compare because people Mm -hmm. wanted to see this new plant and what it looked like being grown in India and what Chinese tea being grown in India looked like. And Darjeeling comes onto the scene as a growing area. So he brought in both and he brought in Indian tea grown with both stock. And you actually can, because they're also trying to figure out, because for a long time, even though we know uh, the, uh, even though we knew the um, uh, truth behind it is that tea is from the same plant and it's a processing that makes the categories and not different species. you be surprised at how long we've, as a species, <laughs> knew this and denied it and debated it. Um, and you can see this kind of over time. And uh, so Q, so Hooker um, brought in everything to look at, to reconsider what's going on. What's, what's happening season?
0: to tea? How's well, it I'm sure many of our listeners actually aren't super familiar mm-hmm. with how, you know, how tea is made and how you can get mm-hmm. green tea versus a black tea versus like a poor, like a tea brick. Yeah. Could you break that down for us a little bit? Just because Certainly. the everyday tea consumer, like, what are we actually dealing with when we look at like green versus black versus like you know, <laughs> English breakfast or, you know, it's all these yeah. different tea tea types and varieties and Earl Grey, which is one of my favorites as well. Like what, right. what, how do we get to those, those products?
1: Yeah. So, so tea as I'm talking about is Camellia sinensis, Variety sinensis or Variety samica. Um, commonly known as uh, big leaf or small leaf. Um, it's a small leaf, typically comes from, or people join us, it's the Chinese leaf, and the large leaf um, is from India or up into Myanmar, Thailand, and Yunnan province of China. And it is it does have a very large leaf. So side by side, they look almost like they're not related in some cases. Um, so it is one plant, um, and the processing um, makes the difference tea categories, and tea types. So the degree of oxidation is how people commonly break down categories of tea. The first being green. You wanna, you wanna pick it, um, apply heat, either dry heat or wet heat. Um, so it's a kill green step, um, to, to kill the enzymes in the leaf um, or denature them so they don't brown. What I'm talking about here is like if you slice an apple or how quickly it browns, right? So that's, that's oxidation happening um, Mm -hmm. on a chemical level. So, so if you heat the leaf, it doesn't brown.
0: It stays green. Yeah.
1: So it's just like if you blanch spinach or broccoli, right? Boiling in water, it can stay green in your fridge. It won't, it won't start browning or get emerald green color. So that's, that's the idea. That's how you need to make green tea. It's actually made relatively quickly compared to others. Um, Then the other categories in the order are white, and yellow. Some people invert those. Sometimes it's green, yellow, white, or green white yellow oolong which is a semi oxidized category black tea is a fully oxidized category and then there's dark tea or what we call in in the west dark tea okay um empour can fit depending on the stage and and the camps that you're in it's a it can be green tea or it will be a dark tea there so those are the six Categories and within those categories, I call it. It's just categories, kind of like an umbrella. Mm-hmm. Underneath each category, you have a list of different tea types, and that's the difference between the curly one, the flat one, the one that looks a little bit more lime green, the one that looks really dark, the one that's rolled into a ball, that's that smells like jasmine or something like that. And um, and there's there's different there's different names. Um, there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of um, a really long history, a lot of long tradition of some of these teas, and some of them can be brand new. Um, Mm -hmm. And the confusing part is that a a lot of it can be marketing when the farther away that it travels yeah, the Western market, a lot of it is very confusing, to be honest. Um, And as soon as you do something two or more outside of like a scenting or something like that, it's a tea blend. And then you're Mm -hmm. bringing in the energetics, the history, and different processes for each ingredient that you have. So Earl Grey that you mentioned is scented with bergamot oil. It's from a citrus, a rind of a citrus. Um, So there's Smoky Earl Grey. There's London Fog that includes it. You know, there's all of these names.
0: Different different oils infused into it, yeah.
1: So there's teas and teas and tea blends. And you actually, from tying it back to the historic collection, we do really see this. So this is Mm -hmm. what um, Q's first director was collecting in the beginning. And some of our most interesting teas today are some of those original teas that he collected that were published in the 1855 guide. Mm -hmm. And he lists them. You can tell it's a category of plants that he liked, that people would find interesting or that they know about. And he was selling that guide. He put in a very detailed list of what was in the tea cabinets um, and a little bit of explanation. In one publication, it says it tastes great (laughs) (laughs) before they put them in the cabinets. That's great. (laughs) <laughs> is, uh, it's um it's fun so you see these these names come through and that's a challenge historically because by now all the leaves are brown and the names and the grades change and sometimes the t grades and the the size of the leaf or the quality of the leaf and the the name of what it is is interchangeable sometimes they're the mm-hmm. same all of that evolves over time and it's yeah, tricky to study
0: with flavor, so going back to the preparation with green tea, you're you're quickly heating it. Is it the case that for black tea that you're just letting it kind of oxidize? You don't do anything to it after you harvest it, or is there a processing step?
1: Yeah, there you do. You you usually um, pick leaves. You can't pick them all year round. You pick them in, in flushes when mm-hmm. you you know when the burst of spring and the leaves come out it's a flush and okay. right now we're, we're definitely in uh, the spring flush time right now so everyone's really? freeze frantically in buying time right now um uh it's been going on for like a month and a half too and um yeah so you do pick young leaves you let them wilt which evap- evaporates some of the water out
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and you don't want to bruise the green because of course you don't want it to prematurely oxidize Um, and for black, uh, you, you still don't want to bruise them when you don't want them, but you let them wilt and then you roll them and you you do crush the leaf. You do the opposite. So that
0: releases the enzymes to help them oxidize.
1: Okay. All the juice and all all the oxides, And then it starts browning like right away from the outside, outside into the leaf. And, um the length you do that if you do that inside or outside the temperature and humidity of your room all uh, you can imagine there's so many factors in making tea so many variables and for black tea you can totally tell if it was oxidized in a cold room or oxidized in a uh warm room mm-hmm. like in the tropics you can tell like you know there's nothing but hot and humid right that in like a 65 degree room when it's really dry out you know it's going to make a difference and you you can tell that and that's becomes the toar and the the um tea we love tea industry falls on the coattails of the specialty coffee and definitely in the wine industry there's parallels to both the tea tasting yeah use the word toar but it's definitely the taste of place like you can consumers around the world tea tasters you can tell if a black tea um the genetics of it of the plant is if it's a variety somica or sinensis you can tell what season it was picked in you can tell where it's from it's very it's a very
0: much reflective you can taste all that you can taste that chemistry that's an amazing skill like i i'm definitely not such a connoisseur i i would like to learn though (laughs) <laughs> and then one last question I have is white or yellow tea? So we have heating for green, rolling for black. Where does white and yellow yeah. tea fall in? So
1: the the key step for each category, is if So for a green, it's again like that um, that quick fire. For mm-hmm. white tea, you don't you just let it wither till it's 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 dried essentially. Oh, so okay. Withering is the the key thing. So some people think that that's the the rawest form
0: like on un- it's not crushed it's just let to okay you know, So
1: yeah and it's also the place uh, some of the most expensive teas it's because white tea the two main types is a, C- a silver needle or a needle tea where it's, it's literally just the unopened buds oh my goodness which is incredibly high uh, labor costs and mm-hmm. costs you see reflected as an end consumer and then a white peony which is one or two leaves and a bud so it's it's just the young material dried so you get lots of sweetness um, and the floral uh, floral notes of spring, so you just let that dry. So either way, um, you it's also a good candidate for for blending different floral teas. So you see that often in rose and peach and things like that. Um, white uh, yellow tea is really was a category that was made by accident. So <laughs> it, they were making green tea, put in a basket with a lid on it. You know, it made a pile of the leaves still warm, like out of a wok, uh-huh. um, you know, China and uh and it it just it kept cooking in a different way in like in like a warm pot heat pile and mm-hmm. so like smothering is like cuz it came out is a the leaf was a different color and then the cup was a different color so that added step um that key key step makes it yellow and then oolong is semi-oxidized so it's a very artisanal category they all are but you have green looking oolongs and you have fully oxidized oolongs. It's mm-hmm. really the one in the middle. So there are some generalities that you can have with the spectrum of, of tea, of this of this category spectrum, as I say. So the first half I just mentioned will have um, uh, lots of uh, like uh, green, um, fresh green, fresh grass, roasted chestnut, florals. And as you oxidize, you get more fruit. And you get more earthiness, and you get more maltiness, you get some sweetness coming out because, as you know, if any if any cook will know, is that when you apply heat and you roast a vegetable, what happens? It gets sweet. You're caramelizing the sugars and the yeah. present. So it it really it really kind of evolves. And then, um, and so black cheese and mentions you just you bruise it, you expose all the juices, it oxidizes fully. There's shaping in there for all of these, and, um, and you dry it. And then dark tea is a, is a, is a fermented tea.
0: It's fermented.
1: Post, okay. Post, post fermented um, tea. So there are a few traditional um, tea types out there and, um, and <laughs> there's that's a, each one of these is a whole conversation. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's the last category. So in that spectrum, you get very, light fragile leaves so you want kind of low temperatures and short infusion times for greens, whites, yellows, Um, and then a little bit hotter and a little bit longer for the more oxidized leaves. Mm -hmm. Everything you do from when you pick it to when you dry it makes the category and type.
0: Wow, so there's this huge, I mean a huge diversity of products coming from a single plant species and around the single plant species we have a huge diversity in tools, that enable its processing and consumption, and that's, I guess, what you see in this economic botany collection or this biocultural um, mm-hmm. collection is a mix of both the materials that are consumed, and and the vessels and tools that we use to prepare them. That's fascinating. So that's different than what we would see in a classic, you know, a, a museum, a typical museum, right? That we yeah. have kind of both sides of that coin. That's yeah
1: it, the plant-based artifacts are tough to maintain mm,
0: yeah I, I can imagine they might or, degrade over time yeah
1: they degrade over time and especially if it was use used you have use wear which is not wrong and just presents a challenge um and there are handbooks and dialogues out there for for um conservators and curators and how to manage uh, plant-based artifacts um but it been also b- bugs love plants. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. An insect is like an herbarium's, you know, worse worst enemy. And I'm I'm guessing the same for biocultural collections. Yeah.
1: Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. have bug yeah. traps that check regularly. I have mouse traps out. I, I've caught a few. Um, <laughs> oh. sorry to all the vegans out there. <laughs> that like um loves animals, but that's that the herbarium zone is is not where mice need to be. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no. You can destroy so, the samples. Yeah. So they sometimes they yeah, they come in. So you know, plant based object based collections, um, especially at Q and at Missouri, you know, we we want uh, tea leaves and tea wares and even processing equipment. So we want not just the end result. We want the process as well. And that's incredibly telling. And if you and if you or anybody knows about like, uh, you know, any any process i mean that that's going to involve more plants it's going to it's not just tea so you know there are you know woven uh trays and equipment that's used with plants used with other plants to make the process so just looking at the end result doesn't tell the full story so at missouri um here you know we have an established data standard um data minimum and, and a standard standard we're trying to keep and um and you know we don't just we we don't just want the final result. So we're we're really growing our paper collection right now, and um, and we have like Amate beaters and um tapa beaters, and we have some finished uh, paper and tapa as well to kind of show it. But you know it, it's definitely something that wider picture, um, that bigger story, as well as all of the materials and data that comes with it. We we want the full picture. So um it's something that I'm looking at for for both collections.
0: Yeah, well let's let's talk a little bit more about biocultural collections in the context of what you're doing now at the Missouri Botanical Garden. And so and we've spoken about Q and Q has this amazing economic botany collection. And for the listeners out there, um, you may recall an episode where I spoke with the director of Q's um, Biocultural Collections, Dr. Mark Nesbitt, about his work on tonic water, which was a really fascinating book that he co-authored with Kem um, Walker. Um, and But now, Aurora, you're at Mobot, um, and the, the director there is also another former guest on the show, Robbie Hart, who um, shared with us some really fascinating tales of his research in the Himalayas and um how to make yak butter tea which also kind of segues into this episode yep. i've not yet tried yak butter tea it's on my list of, of things i want to try at some point um yep. but it comes from that brick basically that's brought up the mountain yep. and is yeah and it, would the would the tea brick be considered a fermented product is that kind of how it gloms together as a brick or is that a different product
1: um yeah so it's not um so it's compressed. So the, okay. the paper are made. It's kind of steamed and compressed into the shape. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not always uh, steamed, but uh, it is is pressed into that mold originally. Um, so it's kind of kind of a two parts to your question. And it's historically or present day, because present day, <laughs> um, there's there's kind of two two types of puar, a shang puar, or a shang pu. In a, in, a, in a shu puar or shu pu um, and a shang is a very young very green leaf very um starts out as mao, mao cha or, or, a, or, or a rough tea or it's dried in the sun it tastes delicious but then i steam it press into a cake and that's shang puar um, that's not aged yet that's could be it's a puar but a green puar that could be in a, in the green category over time it becomes a dark tea when it's aged, when it's, when it's vintage. It, it, and there's a lot of discussion and a lot of talk about what's actually happens in the cake when it ages, right? Um, and this is the tea that parallels with aging a wine, um, right? It, it, it definitely evolves with age. Um, and then there's the Shu Puar, which was developed um, in the 1970s to replicate age Sheng puar because it tastes delicious and people didn't want to wait 30 years <laughs> to go for an aged shung, uh, aged shung cake. So there's kind of two main types now. So all of the poor we see in the US market that comes out is this shu pour um, or this pile fermented uh, pour. So the bricks that Robbie was talking about historically were the shung cakes. And as you mentioned, they go up out of Yunnan or out of Sichuan over the Tea horse road into Tibet or upper Yunnan, in Tibet and they often followed the the Tibetan diaspora, and um, on that journey, if you look at old photos, they're wrapped in bamboo husks. They're wrapped in you know porous material, on the back on of, of of a mule or a yak or person. Once you get up at high high elevation, on that journey, it would evolve. It would evolve. It would change. It started out as one thing, and it changed by the time it got um, to the markets up in the mountains, and um, So you could see a shoe cake today. You could see a shung cake. Um, And the speed of transport makes it a different product. So it's a very great story of looking at the T-Horse Road. There are people walk, you can walk sections of it today. It was being used like a a human transport trade route um, into Mao Zedong's era. And he insists saying this is, we can, we need to move past this and 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 kind of put an end to it so you can still find segments um across um southwest china um where the stones are smooth to like glass of, wow. of hooves and foot walking over it for centuries <laughs> and if you're in, if you ever been to yunnan or a look at a, a topographical map it is major valleys the headwaters of major rivers going down the mekong the Yangtze, and uh, huge valleys. I mean, it's the only way north. It's, it's up yeah, yeah. I mean, it's
0: not even for centuries, it's for millennia. I mean,
1: of human movement, it's-, it's This is like one day of day. the
0: oldest forms of tea, but today, probably, I mean, would I be would I be correct in saying this is the rarest form of tea because people just don't make that journey any longer of this, you know, on foot? If, if, if the product actually develops fully on the journey, if we don't have people on that journey, any longer in the same way, it it's just it's just evolved into being in a different phase. Um,
1: different phase okay. There is there is a, a wonderful book, um, Puar, uh, uh, by Lasting Zong, um, out of University of Washington Press, and um, and it it, it summarizes everything about Puar, and I, mm-hmm. I definitely encourage you to read it. Um, but I would still say I still argue that I mean it is still of all the t types out there, it is a very old one. It might be one of the mm-hmm. oldest that we still have in that older form today. If it's not you know, millennia, it is certainly evolved out of that. But so in the last few hundred years, it's been the same. Speaking to the you know the other types and cues collection, this one twisted T type that we think is might be gone. So yeah. one that has um, persisted and why there's there's certain cultural value and use that. Has kept it around mm-hmm. so it's it's a different type people still age it you can age it in a cool uh low humidity or in a warm high humidity so like difference of, of aging something in seattle versus la yeah or or or, or florida more accurately mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. or like kunming like the capital of Yunnan province or hong kong there's two major um, places of poor aging and so when you buy a cake, you buy, you know, for the genetics, the maker, the origin. Um, and so this is definitely where you get into like the Tawar language and, and you can yeah. kind of see parallels. It makes there. me
0: think of whiskey and rum. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a totally thing. different thing, but yeah. also you've got these different elements of the materials you start with, where it's aged, how it's aged, you know, you get less of a of a of a yeah. uh, of of an angel share, for example, in northern Europe than you do in, in Jamaica right? And so you age, your rums age much more quickly than like a Scottish whiskey, a Scotch whiskey would. Um, so similar, I guess, in some ways to how the tea is aging based on also ambient temperature. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I
1: I forgot, I forgot to mention this part. Yeah. So it's one, it's one of my favorite categories. It's one that it's so old and has such value today that, you know, I was really, I've always been inspired by Nina Atkins work mm-hmm. and um, an ethnobotanist that, that passed too young. Um, and her her work is really just ama- amazing it has definitely made uh, an impact on me um but her book uh, eating on the wild side and yeah. the first chapter the call of the wild just captivated me and this spectrum of wild to cultivated in food and me- medicine and that it's it's a continuum both i mean and that whole conversation and Puar was one of those teas that is always a playground in my mind because a lot of Selena Ahmed's work looks at um, poor growing in, in Yunnan province mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, looking at this. So the landscapes of how the tea is grown in southern Yunnan is is different from Assam and from Darjeeling and Kenya and and areas of, of major tea production around the world and even East China. And um, and um it's really unique. You know, it's it's the birth. It comes from the birthplace of tea. There's a kind of yeah. a bell that. That uh, genetic kind of belt in Southeast Asia, and then the cultivation is it, it moved up and over into China, and we're having this tea come out of that area, and it's grown in still a very unique, very beautiful way, and it's always something that's fascinating. But then you look at the recent history, of the last few hundred years, and it, it over the with the Tea Horse Road is a relatively new thing in the timeline of tea. And that came and has came came and went. And now you have air freight around the world. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. So the product is hung on and has evolved. And there are people that, that have talked about this. And I've been to Southern Yunnan. I've been to Northern Laos. I, I've I've seen it grow. I've had it. Um, I've had it cooked, I've had it brewed, had mm-hmm. it stewed. And you know, it's one of those things that you know you can eat leaves of different types too. I've had it in Japan, I've had it in eastern China you know, you can eat tea leaves, you can in different various ways, you can ferment them. So you Mm -hmm. have tea go from a beverage, a food, and a tonic and a medicine, and and then a beverage and a beverage in so many different forms, um, more than any of the any of those other categories on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I really like this beverage to bring people together to caffeinate the world. (laughs) (laughs) And also um, fit into all of these these different things. So are the categories just self-inflicted like do we need boxes to put it in or can it can it just be what it isn't in, in front of us all these different
0: well okay i have to take this opportunity to ask you for some advice because i'm actually i'll be in japan this month and i'm going to be visiting um, the matcha growing kind of area outside of kyoto and so maybe could you tell me what is matcha <laughs> before I get there and what should I be looking out for I mean i am just being fully honest here because I am not a tea expert and as we just learned there are many many forms of tea so what sure. is Marcia? and as a biocultural collections expert what types of objects might I want to look out for on this trip because the things that are available today are going to perhaps be rare in the future and so maybe I should pick up some things um, for our own kind of herbarium and small biocultural collection
1: yeah, um, we'll know that uh, tea moved to Japan from China. Mm-hmm. Not uh, the the culture of, of tea. So at the time, uh, powdered tea was all the rage in in China, and that tradition moved with with monks and spirituality um, to Japan, and then China really changed its form to being whole leaf teas, mm-hmm. and Japan really stuck to the whole powdered tea. And evolved that culture over the last few hundred years um, into being tea as we know it today. So we know Japanese tea as um, the bright green leaves. Yeah, and and right, and compared to many Chinese teas that are more of an emerald or darker. Mm -hmm. So that's going into like that firing step I mentioned. So when you put dry dry heat and you you flash fire it in a wok. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to kill the enzyme you are going to give it like a nuttiness the leaf is you're going to get a, like a caramelized right like a fired caramel in japan the bright the bright green the technique that's more com- that mo- that's most common is steam firing so okay. it doesn't take long they're using a wet heat and that's what gives you the bright color mm-hmm. so you have to know that steaming and dry firing are both used in both countries okay but China is more uh, known for dry fire, and Japan's more known for wet fire.
0: That makes sense to me because they also have. I mean, another thing I'll be doing while I'm there is checking out the onsen, where you have all the steam, you know, hot springs, uh-huh. and you know they steam and heat, wet heat their people too, yeah, <laughs> and- to the uh, the plants, which I'm very well, much looking forward to.
1: <laughs> and well, and you'll and this and this and the sushi and everything else. So it, yeah, so when you steam fire leaf, it's giving you oceanic. It's giving you salty it's giving mm-hmm. uh, the palette of uh of sushi of, of the cuisines of uh, cuisine of japan right mm-hmm. so yeah. it compares really well with flavors that were already um enjoyed by the people of japan so that's why it's it's amazing when you see a plant spreader the diaspora of a plant going around the world and yeah.
0: uh, how it fits within how it your fits favorite. which, which
1: yeah. one if you're a coffee or a tea Culture um, often or, or other caffeinated plant all, all, economics plays a huge part of that, but also flavor too, in mm-hmm. um, which yeah. types and everything else. And there's a few variables, but in Japan, the powdered stuck and the um, and these flavor profiles of this type of green tea stock. So, the main tea is a whole leaf, is, is a leaf tea of sencha. You'll see that around. Okay. But matcha is different. It's a small part of their industry, will make matcha. You're going to the best tea, historic uh, matcha producing. Do you want me to go with you? I can.
0: Yeah, up. come along. I, I mean, I may end up giving you some FaceTime calls while I'm out in the fields. Like, what am I looking <laughs> at? Yeah, <right. laughs>
1: So, so matcha and gyokuro represent a small s- segment of of the industry uh, output in Japan, and yeah. they're both shaded, tea, uh, shaded teas. So they yeah. actually are um, like on post with like black tarps yeah. over their bushes to simulate shade. Um, the same tarps and things that are actually adapted for ginseng production that yeah. you see in North Central Wisconsin and in, in the ginseng fields. Um, so you see them on slopes, they're terraced, but they're shaded to boost the chlorophyll. So what might be like a lime colored leaf will become like deep emerald emerald. Wow. Okay. From the shading. And then they pick it and they make this um, uh, processed stage of the green. And then it, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to summarize it really quickly, um, but they make this, uh, this whole leaf uh, a dried why am I spacing on the word? Um, it's like
0: steamed first, and then it's
1: yeah, it's steamed. So I'm sorry, it's it's picked, wilted, steamed, um, and then it ends up coming up like broken, like flakes. So the mm-hmm. steaming process, and then that is what those like um, a dried leaf. That's what they put into a stone mill or a okay. ball mill or any sort of mechanized mill, and that's what they they mill down a, a green leaf into a pow- a green leaf powder.
0: Okay. And And that that powder, how is that consumed? So I know, like with a regular cup of black tea, I would steep it and then strain it. Are you drinking the actual leaf powder in the beverage, or is it strained?
1: Yeah. So that so because it's a powder, this is what makes it really unique and what hit the matcha made the matcha craze in in America. Um, Still now, we're still seeing it now, but certainly over the last uh, Mm -hmm. ten years or so, it's it's the tea that you consume. Usually, you strain a leaf. Uh, you brew a leaf and you strain mm-hmm. it out and you drink the infusion, right? With matcha, you're actually whisking it into the warm water and you're drinking it all, drinking it whole. Okay. Um, everything involved. So you are consuming it. So you're getting tea solids as well. So you have a different caffeine high. It lasts yeah. a little bit longer. It will, it will, might be stronger. You might uh, feel it quicker. Um, but it does last a little bit longer and this matcha, there's a whole matcha ceremony. This is tied intimately into their spirituality. It's a very sacred process in, in plant and in product that they're making. Also there, there's a gyokuro ceremony and a sencha ceremony. Um, but the one that you that you probably be, will be sitting in um, will be the matcha ceremony right um, on, on your trip. but it is one that is whisked with a bamboo whisk in a bowl. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are different materials for part of each of these ceremonies some of them are made from plants there's lacquerware containers there's bamboo scoops there's bamboo whisks Um, and there are of course a tradition and quality standards for each of these materials and matcha bowls of course Um, but it's only like an ounce or two like a scoop of matcha a certain amount of water that you whisk until frothy and that you consume so it's completely different uh way which we do it here but america being the melting pot uh (laughs) that it is you see matcha and
0: everything everything yeah yeah very different from the kind of sacred traditional consumption Right, we we have
1: the garden here um in missouri has a tea house island or a tea house um in the middle of our japanese garden and in the in the waterway and um we open it up for um, our, our Japanese festival in the fall. Mm. We close it off uh, during the year because we it's it's a it is a sacred space and we don't want uh, anybody to 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 vandalize it. You you don't wear shoes inside. By the way, take your take your shoes off. Take my shoes off. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, it it is so you know as a so yeah so we we open it up at at a a festival and the lines go over the arched bridge around the around the pond to to get into it so it's um we don't have any matcha at queue um if anybody's listening out there if you see it in bulk and you see it anything but bright green it's spent it's it's um it you can consume it, it just won't taste that great. It doesn't have okay. the juiciness, so having that bright green food. color is
0: important. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and green teas are meant to be fresh because guess what? They come, it's a, it's a tree, it's, a, it's gonna there'll be a crop next year. Yeah. So, green teas and whites and yellows, there are a tradition of aging and doing different things with them, but generally, they say um, drink within a year, even if because imagine this we have you know, we have a sensitive leaf that ages quickly mm-hmm. um, today you can have it, um, you can have all of his fancy bags and airtight everything. And I've had a bag of matcha and gyokuro and um, never opened in the best storage, you know, conditions, open it up and it still doesn't have that like juiciness to it. It has a little stale. And I was like, and this is in uh, 21st century Plastic, so type it's best
0: bag. fresh. Best to use it. So it's, it's, there are green yeah.
1: teas and certainly matcha. Sometimes yeah. you'll probably see it ground fresh in front of you. Oh, that's it Can exciting. be that fresh. So you want to you want to drink everything, and for heaven's sakes, don't put glass uh, tea in glassware, glass containers in a windowsill where it cooks it in the jar. You oh, can no. totally see it. You can ruin you can ruin matcha within two weeks if it's left.
0: Wow. Well hey good advice uh listeners keep keep it out of the sun <laughs> like to slowly sorry. convert america to, to read
1: the, the instructions and not do that
0: <laughs> yeah i love it i love it well i think we're we're just we're about out of time um we're thank you so much for sharing your incredible knowledge around teas and and really important biocultural objects and um I know you're going to be here in Atlanta for the Society for Economic Botany and Society of Ethnobiology meeting. Um, For those of you that are still considering, we have registration open until May 18th. Um, And we also have a special uh, field trip to a uh, paper making um, museum where we're going to learn about those objects involved in paper here in Georgia. So lots to learn and explore. But thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really great to speak with you. No problem. My
1: pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded for you today on Zoom. Um, I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth from Co-Conspiracy Entertainment for putting on a great episode for us each and every week. I also want to let you know about where you can help support the show. There are a couple of things you can do. Number one is you can head over to apple podcast and just click those five stars um and maybe leave a comment this will help other new listeners find the program um you can also support the show through buying some uh, swag we have a lot of fun products available for you on mysterycontrol.com and you can head over to the foodie pharmacology um, store there so thanks so much for listening stay healthy out there and i'll see you next time